Welcome to the Few Podcast. Never in the field of human contact was so much over. By so many, can so few. So you want to become one of the few. You can't skip steps. You have to put one foot in front of the other. Things take time. I have a dream. dream. Hear inspiring stories from the few and learn about what it takes to turn your dreams into a reality. It's a day for all Australians, isn't it? It's a day that brings us all together. Marvellous. Four, three, two, one. Your hosts, Boo and Sean. Thanks, everyone, for tuning into another episode of The Few. Uh, really exciting opportunity today to talk to someone who I've been researching over the last few weeks. It's been very exciting uh, to get some insights into our, uh, our guest today. Uh, Sean, how have you been, mate? I know that you're also uh, pretty excited to see uh, this left field character and some of the adventures that he's been on. Absolutely. No, really looking forward to today. Doing well, mate. Doing well. Looking forward to getting stuck into another great conversation. Awesome. Well, today's guest has uh, probably taken an interesting tangent in life, uh, being touched emotionally by uh, some uh, post-conflict environments, in-conflict environments, and having the opportunity to work with people that you know require a helping hand, but a little bit different to the first world uh, helping hand that we're kind of used to. And I think we're going to have a really good conversation today about our guests uh, fulfilling their uh, life's purpose, uh, doing something that is incredibly purposeful for a lot of people, but also how to balance that fine line between getting too involved in what you do and also being able to maintain that separation and engagement with your family and friends back home. So with no further ado, we're really uh, super duper excited to introduce our guest today, uh, Andrew McLeod. Andrew, thanks so much for coming on to the few podcasts with us today. Absolute pleasure, Boo. Very much looking forward to it. And g'day, Sean. How are you, Andrew? Great to have you here. Very well. So, Andrew, uh, real simple question uh, for you, mate. Would you say today that you are living to your true purpose, that you are fulfilling the type of destiny that you always hoped uh, that and dreamed that you'd be able to fulfill? Well, yes and no. It depends what your measure is. You know, am I doing the best I possibly can? No. Am I doing well? Yes. Um, you, you aim for perfect and never achieve it. So you're always trying to do better and better and trying to do more and more. But generally, I have a thing called the day before you die test. If someone walks in and says, hey, you're going to die tomorrow, how do you value your life over your last 20, in the last 24 hours of your life? And my test is, have I done more good than I've done harm? And I think I passed that test. The question then comes, have you done as much harm as you, sorry, as much good as you possibly can and done as little harm as you possibly can? The answer to that question is always no. So it's always an ongoing challenge to maximize your good and minimize your harm. And I presume within that equation, you're talking about the universe uh, that you have control of and as far as you can reach. I mean, we'd all, yeah. I, I guess, love to rule the world and make it a better place. But but I imagine uh, in the field that you're in, there's an endless need for help and for good. Well, that's right. And you, you've got to look within the framework of what is your individual capacity. And once you've done that, you very quickly realize that your individual capacity is best used to inspire other people as well. Then you get a multiplier effect on what you're doing. And certainly at my time in life, I'm now 54. And one of my big focuses now is to make sure that we inspire, train and empower the next generation to be able to carry the torch onwards. So today, it's not so much about what I personally am achieving, it's how do I inspire and motivate it other people to achieve. So Andrew, just for the benefit of our listeners as well, clearly we've done a little bit of research into your background, what you've been doing, that sort of stuff. Um, my understanding is you kind of started out going down the path uh, to, to become a lawyer and um, and it was, it, was un, it was during that that you uh, got a bit of advice around what you would use those skills for, what you would potentially use them for. And then what did you, you know, where did, what did you move into that's clearly become an important part of your life since then? Yeah, it's re- really good, Sean. Um, the, the turning point in my life was when I was 20. My mum called me up one day and said, hi, I've got a brain tumour, I'm dying. So I had to fly back. I was working on Hayman Island washing dishes, one of the best jobs I've ever had on the Whit Sundays, beautiful part of the world. Flew back to, to uh, Melbourne and helped nurse mum for the month, few months in life she had left. And that, at the age of 20, 21, forced me to start asking the questions you normally ask when you're 60, you know, what's the meaning of life, what's the purpose? And I'm a little bit lost, went off to do a law degree because it's a very good generalist degree. And then in my second year law, um, a fellow named Michael Tate, who was Federal Minister for Justice and a Senator from Tasmania, was giving a speech on constitutional law 
halfway through, he stopped and he said, actually, I'm not going to talk about constitutional law. I'm going to talk about having a law degree. And he said, having a law degree doesn't grant you a happy life and a wealthy existence. It imposes on you an obligation to use your skills for the betterment of other people. And that just really resonated with me. And I was sitting there in that lecture going, use my skills for the betterment of other people. Well, you can help people in your local community. You can help people in your city. You can help people in your state, in your country or worldwide. And I'm a narcissistic bugger. I think I can save the world. So I thought to myself, well, I want to do things at the, at the global level. And if you really want to do the most good, you've got to go to the places that are the worst. You don't make the world better by working with good and keeping them good. You make the world better by working in bad and making it less bad. That's how you make the world better. So I decided, well, I need to go to some of the worst parts in the world. I want to go and work for the International Committee for the Red Cross or the UN High Commission for Refugees. And in the end, I work with both. Incredible, incredible. And um, as I understand it too, you would have gone through and seen some really, you know, incredibly difficult and horrific uh, things in, in your time. How do you create... You know, I suppose a separation between going to those places, as you say, that are some of the worst, compared to then stepping back into, you know, the lucky country as we call it here in Australia, where you know it's it's if you you know internet connection's not working or you know you can't uh, you know your your, your favourite show on on Netflix hasn't have a second series is kind of the most challenging thing you've got for that week. How did you go existing in the two worlds over the over the last you know couple of decades? It, look, it, it's an ongoing difficult challenge. Um, like when I first got the job with the International Committee for the Red Cross, uh, my job was to deal with arms carriers, ensure that security and access guarantees for aid workers are in place, which means you're dealing with some of the worst people. Um, so I was in former Yugoslavia in the mid 1990s, Rwanda in the mid 1990s. I stood in a Nyatarama Church, South of Kigali, with three and a half thousand rotting human corpses at my feet, and the smell of that ne never leaves you, and it doesn't to this day leave you. you that, that leaves permanent scars. And I often say to people, if you're going to become an aid worker, you're going to create a permanent division between you on one hand and your family and friends on the other, because you're going to go through experiences that A, they, they've not gone through, B, you wouldn't want them to go through, C, that they won't understand, and D, you really don't want them to understand just how bad it is. So you've got to do a number of things. One, uh, I compartmentalize in my mind a lot. Um, so some experiences get locked away in a box and that box only gets opened in a safe space where there are people who are either well-trained in being able to speak through those issues with you or people who can empathize with you because they've been through something similar. And uh, ex-aid workers are like ex-soldiers. Um, and having been in the Defence Force, I know what both, both are like to an extent. And one of the things we do miss in Australia is we don't have an RSL for aid workers. We don't have safe place for people to come back and, and share the stories. You know, I've been to six war zones, numerous natural disasters. Gosh knows how many dead people I've seen. Um, and you do need to be very, very careful about when and how those thoughts come back up to your consciousness. And you've got to recognise every now and again you've got to spend some time with those thoughts back in your consciousness. Otherwise, they will release in an uncontrolled manner and I would hate to think what would happen um, psychologically then. And one of the things I did when I came back to Australia is lobbied for additional funding for a post-traumatic stress disorder for returning aid workers. Post-Vietnam, we learned very quickly that we weren't giving enough support to soldiers coming back after conflict. Well, as of today, there is still nothing for returning aid workers coming back. I did get Greg Hunt to work with Julia Gillard in her role as chair of Beyond Blue and got an extra $50 million um, out of the federal health budget into um, healthcare, into Beyond Blue for returning aid workers. But that, that needs to expand because what, what does happen to pick up, Sean, on what you said in the question, when I first came back from Rwanda, my stepmother said to me, uh, welcome back to the real world. I said, no. This is welcome back to fantasy land. I've just been in the real world. And I remember absolutely losing it at one point. I was in a little IGA supermarket in South Melbourne and a kid was arguing with his mum about the right and wrong brand of potato chips. And I remember sitting on the floor and bursting into tears because I'd just come back from a country where if a kid woke up with his right arm, his left arm, his right leg and his left leg, he's going to be very, very happy. And here is a kid um, crying about the wrong brand of potato chips. On the flip side, though, when I now go to the MCG and I watch a good game of football, I get extremely emotional in a positive way 
because I look at this stadium with 100,000 people in it, 50% of the crowd's going to be happy, 50% of the crowd's going to be unhappy in a high testosterone game. But at the end of the game, everyone leaves and there's no flares and there's no violence and there are no riot police separating people like you see in Europe and in the United Kingdom. It's still affordable. You know, what we've built in the society in Australia is something so powerful. And I can sit at the MCG and not just take it for granted because I've seen what happens when society gets really, really bad. Instead, I sit at the MCG and I get so happy about all of these people just enjoying life and getting on well. And in, in 2010, Collingwood and St Kilda were in the grand final. I'm a Collingwood supporter and the first game was a draw. And back in those days, they've changed the rules now. If there's a draw, you come back the next week. So you've got this high testosterone game, 50% of people happy, 50% of the people unhappy. You get to the end of the game, siren goes and there's no winner. It's a draw. And the Collingwood supporter, all tense, turns to the St Kilda supporter, all tense, and says, see you next week, mate. I mean, <laughs> you can't beat that. It's, yeah. it's I, the ideal I, example of humanity on the face of the earth. I guess, Andrew, is, uh, you know, what I've taken from that is that being able to see some of the worst, when you come into a situation like that, you're seeing the best. It's yeah. given you It's given you a... Uh, like a, like a, a, you can see the polar opposites where I think a lot of the time um, because, you know, a lot of us have it so, so good and so many things we should be immensely grateful for is that we, the, that left and right is mm. very narrow. We don't see those high positives and we also don't see a lot of the really low negatives. And, yeah, and, Sean, uh, you've, you've hit the nail on the head there. I often describe the summary of uh, being an aid worker is I've seen highs that normal people wouldn't see and seen lows that people normally wouldn't have seen and you get – a much bigger gamut of um, emotional spread of what you see in life, and that that's that's exactly right. So, what are the what are the what's the current I suppose um, you know purpose project you're you're invested in at the moment? What do you, what are you what are you focusing on at this point in in time? Well, it's a slightly long answer, and let me set the context. So. Um, I started in the aid work last millennium, um, but I left the UN in 2010 and I did so citing three reasons. One was lack of efficiency, lack of effectiveness and lack of desire to be held accountable. Two was I'd become uh, come to the subjective opinion on balance, the system is a net harm. So when people say the UN might not be very good, but the world's better off with it than without it, uh, I'm not sure that's true. And then thirdly, the institutional failure to handle the pedophilia within the aid industry. Sexual and gender abuse more, more widely, but pedophilia particularly. And a number of your listeners will sit up straight now and go, what is he talking about? And I say, well, remember the Oxfam scandal a couple of years ago about women being abused by Oxfam workers in Haiti? That is a very small tip of a very large iceberg. I first heard rumours of, of a thing that later became known as the whistleblower scandal in Bosnia in the mid-1990s. And I urge your listeners, there's a movie starring Rachel Weisz. It's on Netflix called Whistleblower that talks about what I'm about to say. Um, 14 and 15-year-old girls were trafficked out of Moldova into Bosnia, chained up in a nightclub called Florida 2000 for the exclusive use of UN staff. And that was known. The woman who blew the whistle on it um, was drummed out. It's never worked again in a day in her life. I urge your, your viewers to go to Netflix um, and watch Whistleblower. In the early 2000s, when I was head of early warning and emergency preparedness for the High Commission for Refugees based in Geneva, there are a series of scandals called the Food for Sex scandals, where in West Africa, families were only allowed into the refugee camps if they handed over their children for sexual favours. Um, Kofi Annan wrote in his book that his largest professional regret was not stopping the genocide in Rwanda. His second largest professional regret was not stopping the pedophilia of UN staff. So what I'm about to say is going to sound like a conspiracy theory. It's not. It's been well known in the industry for a long, long, long time. And for years, the UN and the industry said we've got zero tolerance for sexual exploitation, abuse, particularly of children, but haven't actually done anything to hold these bastards to account. Lots of lovely words, lots of academics writing lots of books about what the problem is, but nothing meaningful has changed. And to show how nothing meaningful has changed, during the Oxfam scandal a couple of years ago, the international media was focused on sexual abuse by peacekeepers at the sharpest point that it's ever been. At that exact time, in Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo, World Health Organization staff were abusing women and children during the Ebola crisis. Now, this is publicly documented as well. And I say to everyone, don't believe a word I'm saying. Google it and you'll see it for yourself. So how much impunity to abusers feel 
that even when the aid industry was under the spotlight for sexual abuse, WHO staff were still abusing women and children in the Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo during an Ebola crisis, a, a disease that spreads through bodily fluids. I mean, you couldn't write this stuff about how much impunity these people feel. So how do we create a new system to end this impunity, to create a fear of detection in future predators? Well, there was a case in California in 2017 called the Golden State Killer case. This guy had wandered around California in the late 70s, early 80s and raped and murdered numbers of women never caught. Cold case investigator opened the file in 2017, found DNA from the crime scene, put it on the national DNA database and nothing came back. He then thought laterally and he created a profile on 23andMe and Ancestry.com for the crime scene DNA. So you then got all the extended genetic relatives. Now, some of your listeners will have done a 23andMe test or an Ancestry.com test. I have. I have 1,092 extended genetic relatives who are already on 23andMe and Ancestry.com. Much to my shame, one of them is Donald J. Trump, whose mother, Mary Ann McLeod, comes from the village next door to my great-grandfather, John McLeod, and the common ancestor is Angus the Bard in 1462, and I have small hands. If I was born in America, I would have been the secretary for the state for the last four years. So you can take the crime scene DNA, you can put it on 23andMe and Ancestry.com, you can map the extended relatives, triangulate backwards, a bit like navigating, and find the father. So I was looking at this and going, hang on, if you've raped or abused a woman or a child overseas and she's got pregnant and had a child as a result, so a subset of victims, victims under the age of 10, the gender profile is almost evenly split 50-50 male or female. So we're talking about victims, A, female, B, between the ages of puberty and menopause, C, that have had the child and kept the child. So a very small set of um, victims. Can I take the DNA from the child, extract the maternal side, focus on the paternal side of the DNA, track the extended relatives in the same way as the Golden State Killer case and then find the father and hold them to account? In theory, the answer is yes. So through King's College and Griffin Law, the law firm I chair, we ran a test in the Philippines last year in a place called Angeles City, which is the sex slums north of Manila, and we took six mother-children DNA pairs, put it through this process called genetic genealogy, and we found five fathers one in Britain, one in Canada, one in California, two in Australia, and we are in various stages of holding the fathers to account for their abuses. The thing is, we've now proved the concept works. So we're about to go to Central and West Africa and repeat the Philippines experiments with children in Africa. And if we can now prove that if a mother claims the child was born of an aid worker, we can find five out of six times the individual aid worker, we can hold them to account. And then even more importantly, and Boo will understand this, one of the things about the Australian Defence Force Discipline Act, the law for soldiers is much stronger than the general community. There is a very strong law for officers called failure to prevent. That is, if one of your soldiers commits a war crime and you haven't done all necessary things to in training, uh, prevention and detection, to stop the, the war crime taking place, then you are guilty of a command responsibility called failure to prevent. What I ultimately want to do is find two or three perpetrators working for the same NGO and then put the CEOs and the trustees on trial for failure to prevent. Because when you've got people like Kofi Annan, who are saying his second largest regret was not stopping the pedophilia of the UN staff, and you go back to the whistleblower scandals of the mid-1990s, there's no one in this industry in the last 25 years that cannot put their hand on their heart and say they did not know or ought not have known this is a problem. To which my challenge then goes back out, well, what have you done to stop it? And there's an old saying, the standard you walk by is the standard you accept. And whilst a lot of people will say, yep, the vast majority of aid workers are very good people, and they are, but they've all walked past this problem. Turning your emotions on and turning your emotions off is a, is a critical element of being a good aid worker. Like I often said to people, um, you have to turn your emotions off as an aid worker. And they're like, hang on, but we thought you'd be very empathetic. Well, you, you, you do need to be very empathetic empathetic with the community, but you're making decisions that impact on life, quality of life, and length of life of people. Like if you've got enough food to feed one valley and you've got to feed two valleys, and when I say enough food, it's the minimum necessary, so you can't halve the ration and put it out to two valleys. You actually decide who eats and who doesn't. Um, there are circumstances I've been in where you've had to decide who lives and who doesn't. Um, I, I often say leadership is not a choice between a good option and a bad option, that's easy. You take the good option. 
Leadership is when you are confronted with two bad options. Do you have the ethical framework to determine the least bad of bad options? You can only determine the least bad of bad options logically because if you do it emotionally, you'll swing from a tree or you'll jump off a cliff. So one of, or or amongst the greatest challenges in some of the environments I've been in is that you have to emotionally disengage in order to provide the best outcomes for the greatest number of people. And then the challenge actually comes in so many fellow aid workers have been through this. The hardest thing is actually coming home. It's trying to re-engage emotionally. It's accepting the wrong brand of potato chips matter. It's understanding the pleasure of the MCG. Actually readjusting back to fantasy land can be very, very difficult because you've got to re-engage emotion then. Yeah, and I think that's that's a really great insight there too is that you made it, I guess you make a decision to go and work in those environments from a place of empathy, but if you if you show up as that, it'll overwhelm you with what you're observing and what you're seeing and and probably, you know, just absolutely break your spirit. Uh, so it's really, really interesting. I mean, this is something that I hadn't heard a lot about before until I started doing some research into yourself and what you're doing. And, you know, the, the even said, I said, I think it said in your um, bio, it talked about, you know, the, the one of the, oh, sorry, on the website there about the, the you know, ident- trying to identify the, the fathers of these of these children in other countries from the, from the aid workers and things. Um, is it, they only, um, went to something like two and a half thousand people, and there were something like two hundred and fifty children from two and a half thousand people that they interviewed, which, which is a tiny, tiny number of all of the possible outcomes. So the the sheer potential scale of this thing just blew my mind. I mean, how do people how do people investigate this, and perhaps you know through some of your um, you know your website or, or information as well? How do people learn a little bit more about about it and what can be done to support that if, you know, if people have the, you know, this is ridiculous, we need to do something about it. How could people get on and support as well? Well, start off, go to heartheircries.org, um, H-E-A-R-T-H-E-I-R, cries, like hearing the cries of victims and hearing the cries of whistleblowers. Um, but I understand the scale from a logical perspective again. We all know there was a huge amount of abuse perpetrated under the auspices of the Catholic Church. Well, let me make this statement. There are more aid workers than there are Catholic priests and more countries than the Catholic Church is present in with better access to children and controlling food, water and shelter. What makes us think the average aid worker is ethically any better than the average Catholic priest? So what I say is there's not a conspiracy of pedophiles secretly bringing everyone in. There's just this enormous opportunity and no effective preventative action. If you have an opportunity to offend and no preventative action, then the natural consequence is a large amount of offending. And in fact, a number of law enforcement agencies around the world have been warning for at least 20 years now that as we crack down on predatory pedophiles in the developed world, the predators now go to the developing world and their chosen methodology to get access to children is to join a children's charity. Now, the moment I say that out loud, you go, well, of course they do. And the difficulty we have in holding people to account is firstly, People don't like talking about pedophilia. It's a subject that people don't like engaging in, and understandably so. So if people will find a disengagement from that subject as fast as they can. Secondly, it's happening over there. It's outside of our our spectrum. There's a thing in the media called the doctrine of proximity. The closer it is to you, the smaller it needs to be to be big news. The further away from you, the bigger it needs to be to be big news. You know, if we have a pedophile teacher around the corner, everyone's going to be jumping up and down. But if there's a whole bunch of pedophiles in the Democratic Republic of Congo, who cares? And the statistics that you came out with before, it comes from Susan Bartell and Sabine Lee did a study, and one academic at Queen University in Canada, the other at Birmingham in the UK, interviews 2,500 Haitian women. They've identified 265 children born of UN peacekeepers since abandoned. There are 2.5 million women of childbearing age in um, Haiti. And from only 2,500 interviews, you've got... 10%. Yeah. No, 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 one. Yeah, it's in the 256 or 265. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, 10%. More than 10%. Yeah, so you turn around, you can go, if you extrapolated that out to the whole childbearing age, you would have tens of thousands of children born of peacekeepers. Now, we've certainly found in our work north, north of Manila, how many children are born of sex tourists and aid workers in countries like Cambodia, Thailand and the Philippines? tens of thousands, tens of thousands. 
And what we've now got to start to do is get governments to take responsibility of working together to expand the work that we're doing on the proof of concept and multiply it out. Because only then, only when you start to get individual accountability will you get change. I firmly believe that you only make change in this subject matter area when you take someone's money or you take someone's liberty. They're the only two things that inspire change. And criminologists around the world will tell you that uh, size of penalty doesn't deter crime, fear of detection does. And right now, the fear of detection in the aid industry is almost zero. So there is no effective deterrence as of today. And again, I'll repeat what I said earlier to your listeners. Don't believe a word I say. Google it and you will be really surprised at A, the scale, and B, how long this has been going for, and C, how many people have known and chosen not to do anything about it. And if you've got friends who are aid workers, chances are they're good people and good aid workers. But ask them, every single one of them, what have you done to stop this problem? And if you haven't done anything, why do you walk past this? This is a fundamental issue, though, across the UN, uh, Andrew. Really, you're always operating in this international jurisdiction. And within a local jurisdiction, uh, my experience is principally in the Middle East. Uh, there's very uh, there's a very loose legal framework. Uh, even if it's reported, uh, and I saw a situation where an individual was caught by the police bringing a child into a hotel, mm. uh, was locked up for about 12 hours before... Uh, being paid off and back out uh, in in the community. Uh, what this and and what I really want to explore here with you is how do you stay motivated? How do mm. you find the the reserves and the resilience to work inside that in that world? Because I know I know what you're saying is true. I've I have observed uh, these situations, but I also know the complexity of the politics and the frameworks of operating in the international community. So how do you find that, that will and determination and what does good look like when you get there? So part of it's my mentality and part of it's military training. I look at things as uh, a, a hurdle is another opportunity to succeed. A, a blockage is another opportunity to break that blockage. Uh, and what you're saying is exactly right. You know, local laws don't always work. So you're like, all right, if I can't get success that way, what's another way of getting success? And in the military, you're taught be very focused on objective. What is, what is the aim? What are the factors affecting aim? And bring together your plan. Aim, stop this. Factors affecting aim. And as you go through, there are blockages that you don't um, predict and there are opportunities that you didn't previously seen. So what we're focusing on in the initial step is um, the extraterritorial law for child sex offences. Now, law normally applies to a country. The Australian criminal law applies in Australia or Victoria and Victoria and New South Wales and in New South Wales and England and England and Germany and Germany. There are very few laws that countries have set that apply across international borders, and those that do apply across international borders are called extraterritorial. And surprise, surprise, the first extraterritorial laws were about taxation, to tax your citizens wherever they are. About 20 or 30 years ago, people started to become more and more aware of overseas child sex tourism, the fat Australian, German, Britain, flying to Cambodia, Thailand, Philippines to have their way with little children. So series of laws in Western countries were created, which were nicknamed the child sex tourism laws. It is now a criminal offence in Australia to have sex with a child under the age of 16 anywhere in the world. So if you're an Australian resident or a national and you have sex with a child in the Democratic Republic of Congo, so long as I can show the prosecutor's evidence of that, we can charge you under Australian law. And in fact, Australian law is world leading. It is now unlawful to fail to report an overseas child sex offence. So if you become aware of an overseas child sex offence and you don't report it, you're also guilty of a crime in Australia now. This sort of law needs to be replicated around the world, but it's nice having this law. The question is, has this law been applied? Now, because these laws were created envisaging the fat German, British, Australian guy on holidays, it was never envisaged as applying to an aid worker in the Democratic Republic of Congo. And one of the things I've done over the last three or four years is saying to government, hey, guess what? It can. 
because the law doesn't say you're not allowed to have sex with a child while you're on holiday. It just says you're not allowed to have sex with a child. So why aren't we applying this law to the aid world? The problem that then comes is a very practical one. How do prosecutors get the relevant evidence? And um, sex offences are a massively underreported crime as it is about one in seven rapes in the UK is reported. I make the radical assumption that far fewer sex offences will be reported in the developing world against the aid industry. Maybe one in 50, maybe one in 100. We're doing a little bit of a study in King's College on the underreported nature of sexual abuse as we speak, because strangely enough, many left-wing feminist academics say my work is undermining the aid industry and they're attacking me, saying that we don't have the data. They're saying that I'm exaggerating the problem. I'm like, hang on, you describe yourself as a left-wing academic feminist fighting for the rights for children, why am I suddenly now the enemy? Because I'm blowing the whistle on this huge problem. There was a report, and your listeners can look this up. The International Development Committee of the House of Commons came out with a report on sexual exploitation and abuse in the aid industry. Now, this is their words, not mine, saying the entire industry is complacent, verging on complicit, and puts the protection of the agencies before the protection of the children. And this happens right through academia as well. Plenty of people have written thousands of books on the problem, but the solutions are not realistic because they're not taking people's money, not taking people's liberty. So you get all of these new hurdles being put up. And the next hurdle is, how do you get the evidence for the prosecutor? Well, reporting of sexual offences is very rare. Um, the time it takes to do the initial investigations, what's happened to the custody of evidence, what's happened to the chain of evidence, where is the victim gone? All of these things are very difficult, which is why I've boiled down to this DNA stuff, because DNA allows us to look back in time. If I have a 32-year-old mother, a 20-year-old child, yes, the child was, uh, or the mother was 12 when the child was born, and I get the DNA evidence, and here's the father, and he's from Australia, and yes, it was an offence to have sex with a child under the age of 16, 20 years ago, I go to the prosecutor, there's the DNA of the mother, there's the DNA of the child, there's the DNA of the father, go get him. And if you don't, because the prosecutor says we have limited resources, in most common law jurisdictions, UK, Australia, US, there's the option to take a private criminal prosecution. So we're going slowly step by step through Hear Their Cries, the charity I co-founded, where we're running the advocacy. Through King's College, where I'm a visiting professor in the genetics and the war studies departments, we're doing the science. And at Griffin Law, the law firm I chair, we will take the private criminal prosecutions pro bono if the authorities don't but we're just going slowly, slowly building up the evidentiary base because a lot of people are trying to stop our work. And the bizarre thing is the people who try to stop our work describe themselves this way on their websites, not my words, their words, left-wing academic fighting for the rights, left-wing feminist academic fighting for the rights for children. And I'm like, why am I the enemy? One of them went as far as to say, you are a middle-aged white man, you have no right to participate in this debate. So you're right to say, Boo and, and Sean, that yes, you keep getting these hurdles put up in front of you and some of them you would never have predicted. I would never have predicted academic feminists would be against this work. I would never have predicted that. But now that it comes up, okay, there's another hurdle. Right, we've got to find a way of getting over that hurdle too. And what inspires me to go to the, the essence of your question is you can look at this huge problem and you go, wow, this is overwhelming, I'm drowning. Or you can go, and I see a path to solve it. So let's follow that path. Let's go there until we fix this problem. Because I have the day before my, I die test and I've got to be able to set this up. And I've got to set it up in a way that it doesn't need me. Because like the Catholic Church problem has been going for 50 years, this one's going to be taking 50 years to solve as well. So whilst I've got to set up the path and start the direction in the right way, I've also got to find the next generation to pass this on to so they continue to succeed and stop this problem. Andrew, it's so powerful, and I know how insanely difficult it is what you're doing. You're soundbiting this. You're talking about the interconnecting parts in different parts of the world. I don't think people can truly understand the complexity of what you're trying to do here. And the fact that you're kicking goals is testament to the rigor and resilience you're bringing to uh, this situation. That problem-solving mindset connected with the sense of purpose, I mean, it's, it's very powerful. What you do, and to take it outside the lane a little bit of uh, the, and trying to connect it with what people do every day, 
What are the lessons that you believe can apply mm. to people and organisations who are worried about what, I mean, I the conversation, you had the chips in the, uh, the supermarket. My, my PTSD moment was in a bar having a drink with someone while two guys were fighting over the best colour leather to <laughs> put in their BMW. Uh, and and I, I, had a snap, I had a snap moment. Yeah. But what are the lessons that the first world are people who don't get exposure to this? What are the key things that, that they can learn from someone like yourself that has gone out there, that has extended themselves, has pushed their emotional limits all the way to the limit? What are these top two or three transferable things we can bring out of that world to live fulfilling and content lives uh, in, an, in the normal inverted commas world? Right. Number one, focus on your goal. Um, know wh what you're doing and why you're doing it. And if it's a big, hairy, audacious goal, as they call it, break it down into bite-sized chunks and identify the next foundation part that you will go to. Like, I want to end child abuse in the aid industry. Am I going to succeed in that in my lifetime? No, I've got to make sure I hand over to the next person. So how do I measure my success? Well, for example, when the International Development Committee released its last report on sexual exploitation and abuse in the aid industry, it talked a lot about my DNA work. And it's written there now in a parliamentary report. So I've now got a new foundation. So now there's a parliamentary report that talks about the size of the problem. This was two years ago. So I'm now not a crazy lunatic fringe guy. It's actually in a parliamentary report. I've now proposed a solution that was sitting in my mind and within a small group of people. It's now out in public in a parliamentary report. That can no longer go away. Here are new bases of work that even if I got run over by a bus tomorrow, someone can pick that work up and run with it. So one, focus on your goal. And if it's a big, hairy, audacious goal, break it down into bite-sized chunks and give yourself a pat on the back every time you reach the new level, which is moving the whole debate one step forward, one step forward, one step forward. Similar framework that we use uh, with, our, you know, with the business owners that, that I work with is the same thing. It's you've got your mission, um, which is effectively your summit of the mountain, but you're not going to go from the ground level to the summit in one go. You've got to go via base camps. Have I got all my fingers? My toes are still there. Uh, I'm acclimatised. That's now the new foundation, as you say, to then go, right, what's base camp two look like? And also found that keeping it to a period of time that's that's, a, that's not three to five years away, that's actually a shorter period of time. You know, setting that base camp being, and we use, we use the end of the year because we're already psychologically programmed, that the end of the year is Christmas and then everything stops for like three or four weeks and then the world comes back to life again in the new year, right? So we thought, well, that's already a pre-programmed psychological, you know, start finish point. Let's use that. So by Christmas, this is where we will, have, where we will get to. And then once you, as you approach there, you go, right, well, what's the next base camp? And it's very similar to what you're saying. It's just have those, those key milestones and, and, and steps to, to move forward. And here's one of my key milestones, which is going to sound a little bit weird. What's my exit point? Because if we know this is a multi-generational challenge, when do I say my bit's done? And this takes a lot of um, emotional intelligence to, to be able to understand when is the right time to give it up. This, uh, this applies in business too. Like Cornerstone Capital, I sat on the board of for, for a number of years. Uh, I, I was on the foundation board. And every startup company has this same problem. It's called founder syndrome, particularly when the CEO is the founder of a company. When do you get to the point where the CEO should hand over to another person, whether it's an NGO or it's a charity, or if you've been coaching the local football club for 20 years, when should you hand over to the next person? Um, it can happen at a national level, like Musharraf's biggest problem in Pakistan, is my, in my view, was he thought he could solve all of Pakistan's problems in his leadership. No, he needed to inspire the next generation. Same with Paul Kagame in Rwanda. You know, he's been in charge for over 20 years now, but where's his successor? Same in politics um, here, you know, um, whether it's Hawke and Keating or Howard and Costello. One of the things about leadership is either you're not emotionally wise enough to empower the next generation to take over from you or you get pushed over. So one of the things that's taking a lot of my headspace at the moment is what's my handover point, who do I hand over to and how do I hand over to make sure that the idea thrives? And it's interesting in terms of that legacy and long-term vision and I think that's somewhere where Western democracy is having a bit mm. of a challenge right now is with the high churn of leadership uh, the inability to to build those long term 
goals. But even more disappointing is when a change of party comes in, the deconstruction of eight years worth of effort to achieve that final goal. When it comes to legacy, what are some examples that you've seen that work well? And, and the, the, the points you talk about there, I'm sure there's a lot of ego attached to it. I'm sure there's a lot. Of, well, no one could possibly do this as well as I, I could. So how could mm. I find someone? But do you have some good examples where you've seen a, a legacy handed over well? Well, um, I think so. And remind me to come back to China in a second on the long-term thinking. But you remember when we were kids, there are a number of really good public education campaigns in Australia. Slip, slop, slap, don't drink and drive, you're a bloody idiot, speed kills, all of these things that have actually been multi-generational, multi-party, multi-state public education campaigns. And the really successful ones, you hardly notice, like don't be a wally with water, slip, slop, slap. These things are now part of our heritage. One of the things that Europeans find surprising when they come to Australia is we no longer have the expression, you have a healthy tan. You know, I have had 18 basal cell carcinomas or squeamish cell carcinomas cut out of my body so far because when I was a kid, we sunburned like hell. Um, so we all now know that that's dangerous. You go to an Australian beach, it sort of empties out a little bit between midday and two. You see kids with long, long sleeves on, hats on. So in terms of what the legacy is and handing over, how many people have had charge of those programs from the mid-70s to now, and how many successful legacy handovers of those programs have we had? And they're so successful, we don't even notice the handover. But let me touch on China for a second. Australia misunderstands China. And our largest opportunity and our largest threat going forward is China. And it's around this long-term thinking. In Australia now, 49% of our population is overseas born or one parent born overseas. 34% of our population is derived from an Asian ethnic heritage. We are a really successful multicultural country. We beat ourselves up about things that we shouldn't. By a global scale, we are not racist, but we do have racism problems in Australia without a doubt, but we're not as racist as most other countries in the world. One or two may be better, but we beat ourselves up about it rightly because we want to be even better. So part of our discussion is how do we go forward over the next 50 years when our largest trading partner is China, our largest military partner is the United States, and we still get most of our cultural influence from the United Kingdom? What do we do as we're moving forward, as our demographic is becoming more and more Asian and more and more international as we change? I think we have this enormous opportunity if we start thinking long term. Deng Xiaoping was asked in the 1970s, just after Mao died, isn't China going through a rough time? And the journalist who asked him expected him to talk about the Cultural Revolution. And Deng's answer was, it's been a rough couple of centuries, but we'll recover. And that says a lot about the way China is elongating its mindset. And China's Belt Road Initiative isn't a trade corridor or it isn't just an economic revival. It is rebuilding China's dominance in the world. And I say rebuilding, not building because for the thousand years between 400 and 1400 that our education system told us was the dark ages and the world went backwards. The world didn't go backwards, the world went forwards. It's just that the European cultures went backwards. And we're incredibly culturally arrogant within our culture that if it doesn't happen in our cultures, we don't see it. So we don't understand the full power of what's actually happening with the Belt Road Initiative and indeed the Shanghai Cooperation Organization that China has built, which now has Central Asian states, Mongolia, Russia, India, um, Pakistan is part of it, i.e. over 50% of the global population. We're still worried about the G7 when a lot of the world-making decisions are made in the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. And a lot of your listeners will now be saying, I haven't heard of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. And that's the point, that we're not seeing things outside of our culture. Let me bring this into a very focused subject matter for a second. Michael McCormack, the Deputy Prime Minister in Australia, has been complaining a lot about the Chinese fake photograph of the Australian soldier executing the Afghan kid holding a goat while standing on an Australian flag and an Afghani flag. I'm going to draw a really fine line here. Is that a fake photograph or is it a piece of propaganda? A fake photograph is a photograph purporting to be an actual representation of events. Is China saying an Australian soldier actually killed a little child while he actually killed a goat while actually standing on an Australian flag and an Afghan flag? No, it's not a fake photograph but it is propaganda. Just like our posters against the Hun and the Jap in World War I and World War II 
created a propaganda um, message. Well, what's China's propaganda message? China's propaganda message is shut up about the Uyghurs because you guys killed innocent people in Afghanistan. Now, is it true that Australians killed innocent people in Afghanistan? Hardest thing for us to wrap our minds around right now is, yes, we did. Our soldiers did. Our Brereton inquiry has uncovered some of it. And when our government says it's going to take us 10 years to get through this, I'm like, no. Put whatever funds you need to put to this to get this issue through a just process in the next two years. Because for every year, this Brereton inquiry and the results of some of the war crimes committed by Australian soldiers in Afghanistan is still hanging over us. We have no credibility to counter China in what we're doing. And think about this in the cultural context. In Asia, you do not make your negotiating partner lose face. How angry have we made China that they're now making us lose face? Because again, people like Michael McCormack have stood up and said, China needs us as much as we need them. To which China's gone, really? Really? Watch, cut barley, cut beef, cut wine, cut international students. And Michael McCormack is saying, ah, but they need our iron ore. So what's China doing right now? They are stockpiling iron ore like mad. That's why iron ore prices are so high right now. And they're working hard to bring the Brazilian mines back on, online. And they've bought the Simandu iron ore project off Rio Tinto in West Africa. And they're going like mad to build that on. Mark my words, sometime in the next two to five years, China is going to cut off their buying of iron ore from Australia because they would have stockpiled it. They would have bought Simandu online. They would have bought Brazil online. And then China's going to say, right, you said we need you as much as um, you need us. Watch. They're going to call our bluff. And we're not smart enough to link forward and think forward and seeing this threat coming down the track at us. So we're not preparing ourselves right. And then what we're not seeing is the opportunity. So I call the period in history that we're living through right now the most exciting time to be alive. It's the sixth great human transition. The five transitions before this, Egyptian to Greek, Greek to Roman, Roman to Zoroastrian, Zoroastrian to Muslim, Muslim to Christian. Now we're going Christian to Chinese. Most of these other great transitions took 200 years. This one's taking 20 years and we're already 10 years through it. Each of the other five great human transitions has been accompanied by a big war. Can we get this human transition done with a big, without a big war? To do that, we need a cultural linguistic translator. As global influence is moving from a European cultural dominance of individualism first to an Asian cultural dominance of collectivism first. And by the way, if people rebut against that, we can't solve climate change from an individualist perspective. It has to be done from a collective perspective. So there are some positives in a collectivist approach as well. So we're transitioning from an individualist approach to a collectivist approach, from a European dominance to an Asian dominance. Imagine if there were somewhere on the world, a country in the right time zone, with the right ethnic mix, with the right linguistic and cultural mix in its population, that was trusted by everyone that could put itself forward to be the great cultural translator through which this huge transition will shift. That'll be the most powerful country for the next 50 years. And for, fortunately for New Zealand, the big country to its left is screwing up its opportunity to take this on. We are so short term in our thinking that we are not seeing the great change that's happening in the world and the great opportunity that we in Australia could grab with that if we create ourselves the position of being a trusted partner for everybody. It's the emotional decision-making versus the logical decision-making. It is. It, it is. And it's the short-term electoral cycles. That's, I think what you see there, and if we translate it into business, we've got an organization that has very good marketing. Propaganda is just a form of marketing. It's the same, same as yeah, Winston Churchill, same as every other era. There's long-term vision, patience, all attributes that the individual meritocracy type of framework that's championed by America is limited, mm. limited in its life cycle. Because once you accumulate all the wealth in the top 1% and we lose the innovation that brought us out of the 40s for, for that 60 years out of, out of World War II, we start to see what's next. Whereas that holistic, inclusive approach where long-term approach, centuries approach that China has. Boo, boo, can I just jump in there and, and make a point? Because it's, it's not just the centuries approach looking forwards. It's also a centuries approach looking backwards. And we've had a very culturally arrogant approach to history. Like when I was a kid growing up in Australia, history started in 1770 with Captain Cook. We actually now know there is, is 
millennia, tens of thousands of years of history in this country. For example, there are foundations of stone buildings in Western Victoria that predate the pyramids. We, we were taught the Aboriginal people are hunters and gatherers. Now we're saying, no, 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 there are buildings older than the pyramids. They're small, but they're older than the pyramids. There is a rock formation just outside of Melbourne, which is kind of shaped like an ice cream cone. The left-hand side maps the winter solstice. The right-hand side maps the summer solstice. The middle maps the equinox. This is dated as 11,700 years old. It's twice as old as Stonehenge. It's 45 minutes drive from Melbourne, and it could be humanity's oldest attempt to map the solar system. Yeah, but I think the problem here, Andrew, is you blow humanity. Yeah, you do. So let's blow it and then let's reconstruct it and let's give it to people in in a happy way by just challenging a couple of things. Like we think the European cultural way of governance, and I include Australia, US, and that is the natural way that human beings have been in in charge. Europeans have dominated since the birth of Jesus Christ only for about 15% of the time. Think about it in that way. Since the fall of the Roman Empire, Asia and Islamic countries dominated trade, science, education, mathematics for well over a thousand years. For example, what was the Roman numeral for the number zero? Answer, there wasn't one, XLVVV. How can you have our counting system and our money system without the number zero? You can't. The decimal system is an incredibly important part of our society every single day. So who invented the number zero? Not where, who? What's the person's name? The fact is we aren't taught that in our education system because it didn't happen in our cultural um, background. The guy is Muhammad al-Harizmi and the anglicization of the name al-Harizmi is algebra. And he did it in his mathematical university outside Kiva in Uzbekistan. Why Uzbekistan? Because the ancient Silk Road ran from East Africa to Xi'an in China and smack bang in the middle was Uzbekistan. That was where all knowledge exchanged and transferred. In other words, the thousand years that we called the Dark Ages, actually human beings progressed. It was just not our society. And we're making that same mistake today. And this is what I've got to urge people is take your cultural hat off, try and see things from another perspective, and then look for the opportunities that you wouldn't have otherwise seen. Bringing it back to what the aid world has taught me, having lived in other cultures, I've had to accept other ways of doing things. And what that empowers me to do now is look at what other people are saying and try and see it from their perspective, marry it up to how our culture sees it in our perspective, and then say, well, where do we find a middle way in this? How do we find a way to empower ourselves and strengthen ourselves? Australia could be the most powerful country for the next 50 years. If only we created the perception of ourselves being a trusted partner for everyone. Now, that's really difficult. You know, there's the old saying, if you sit on the fence, you get splinters up your bum. And what I'm saying is actually for the next 50 years, we've got to sit on the fence. How do we do that? And how do we challenge our culture? And if I was to say, what is Australian culture, you know, The UK has thousands of years of cultural history. So has France, so has Germany. If I look at European culture in Australia, let's put Indigenous culture aside for a second. The one thing that has made, that's been consistent in Australian culture from 1770 onwards has been ongoing change. 60,000 years of stability with Indigenous cultures. Then the Europeans have come. Then the Chinese came. Then there was the gold rushes. Then there were the waves of migrations. Then there was World War I and World War II. Then the Asian migration. Then the African migration. We are a total level of flux. What we've got to do is embrace our ability to change. And what we've then got to do is look forwards and say, where do we want to be in 50 years? And therefore, how do we change to be able to take that? If you think wanting to stop sexual abuse in the aid industry is a complicated problem, and it is, How complicated is it for us to succeed to create a 50-year goal for Australia? I would say very complicated. (laughs) One of the really amazing things you get from working in aid and to some degree the military, probably more so aid, is you do develop a deep understanding that what we know is based on the bubble that we live in. And very rarely does anyone burst that bubble and genuinely live in another culture. We'll go as a tourist to another culture and stay in European orientated hotels with European bus drivers Mm. and have a European experience in a Muslim country, in an Asian country. Similar to when we see international tourists come to Australia doing exactly the same thing. How are they going to really understand Australia? They're over here coming on a Japanese airline, on a Japanese bus with Japanese tour guides. This fundamental issue with humanity, don't, don't you think, which is that need to be in the village, have those 150 touch points and everything beyond that requires a transformative experience in yourself to understand how could potentially all connect. And and to me, the digital era and the ability to have those experiences 
is an enhancer. Even in Afghanistan, I remember being in the middle of nowhere on the Kabul to Mm. Kandahar road and Mm. off into a village and everywhere you could see were transmission towers for mobile Mm. phones for Mm. data. Mm. And I I just had this moment. I thought, what an opportunity for people to grow. You think how slow the industrial revolution, every revolution was because of the transmission of knowledge. Mm. And here we are, and you said it yourself, a 20-year transition. Mm. How powerful do you believe the digital world and connectivity is to this next transformation? Ah, incredibly powerful. The, the single largest empowering factor for women and girls has been the mobile phone, uh, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa where we see the Impaza and other phone-based money transfer systems. It's, it's freed women up from the control of men. Um, and it's created business opportunities, micro-business opportunities that previously haven't, haven't existed. And you're right around cultural connection has been fantastic as well. Um, I, I hear exactly what you say on the Kandahar Road. I mean, you would have experienced this in Afghanistan. I, I felt hospitality through the Islamic world, particularly in Afghanistan and Pakistan, in a way that I never felt in anywhere else. That net and essence of hospitality in Islam doesn't exist in Christianity. And Islam gets bad press um, in the West because of Osama bin Laden and terrorism. But what you don't see is the good side of it. Um, about that hospitality, about the welcomeness, about the real openness. And I've got to say on the table, I'm an atheist. I'm not a Muslim. I'm not a, not a Christian. I'm a passionate disbeliever in God, if I can put it that way. And there's very, very interesting discussions I've had with a number of Im- imams um, when they're talking about their belief in God and I'm talking about my disbelief in God. And there's a saying that I use in circumstances like that, that you listen to understand, you don't listen to argue. Right. I know your perspective and you're not going to change, but I want to understand your perspective. You know my perspective and I'm not going to change, but I want you to understand my perspective. And understanding isn't the same as agreeing. Like I understand China's perspective in Western China. I don't agree with it, but I understand it. I understand China's perspective in both Hong Kong and Taiwan. Don't necessarily agree with it, but I understand it. Listen to understand, not listen to argue. However, the way you put the question is really important. How powerful is technology? Oh, very powerful. Is that a power for good or is it a power for bad? Well, both. And I remember when the internet started back in 1999, my stepmother said to me, oh, isn't this wonderful love is going to spread throughout the world? And I said, well, so is hate. And mind you, I'd just come back from Rwanda. And I said, hate spreads faster than love. And it does. Hate hate does spread faster than love. And we see this through anti-vaxxers, dissemination campaigns, the the stolen election rubbish in the United States, all of this, the conspiracy theories of hate spread much faster than the conspiracy theories of love. So while you're right, technology is an incredibly powerful enabler, it's also got a dark underside and we need to be incredibly aware of the dark underside and find ways of combating that whilst celebrating the good. So Andrew, um, clearly today there's been uh, it's been an incredible conversation and had no idea where it was going to head. It's been uh, somewhat confronting. Uh, I'm sure some of our listeners will feel the same as well. And it's been eye-opening. It's been incredibly inspirational. And and what I'd love to know is if you went back with what you know now, you mm. went back to a you know a younger version of yourself, maybe you know in your mid-teens or something like that, mm. with a piece of advice, uh, life advice. What would you actually say to yourself? I'd probably say what I just said then. I really understand what I mean by listen to understand, not listen to argue. Um, you're not always right. Think about it from someone else's perspective as much as you probably can. Tolerance, um, patience. And then the, the expression that I live by, it's called the serenity prayer. As I said, I'm an atheist, so I don't necessarily believe in God. You know, give me the strength to change the things I can, the serenity to leave the things I can't, and the wisdom to know the difference. And I actually live by that nowadays. You know, you choose which challenges to take on and the other ones don't let them bother you. Thanks, Andrew. Very powerful and thoughtful. I haven't had a conversation like this for a while. My best mate who I started my first company with, he's the only one I can sort of chat to and talk about what it was like. You know, we set up Afghanistan's first mortuary business mm. uh, and that was, or service, and that was confronting, shifting people in and out and about Afghanistan as the result of everything. And just learning the difference between the way a Christian celebrates death versus a Muslim mm. and but being able to pull a team together that despite all of those differences at a very important part of the life cycle, the end, you can mm. still work together. You can still well, come up with a plan. You can still understand each other. 
Well, maybe I'll say to, to both you and Sean, next time you're in Melbourne, there's um, a barbecue in my back garden and a couple of bottles of red wine that need drinking. So whenever you're here, there's a standing invite to come here. Let's pop some wine. There's a sofa bed if we pop too much wine. So you can you can crash on that. And let's have these chats face-to-face as well without a video recorder going or audio recorder going. Excellent. Sounds great. Uh, that sounds wonderful. Thanks for the invite. Well, thanks, Sean. Thanks, Andrew. For those of you interested in reaching out and finding Andrew, do what I did. Google Andrew McLeod, but that's with an M-A-C. Uh, also, Andrew is represented by ICMI Speakers. Touch base to ICMI if you want Andrew to come and look, have a really meaningful discussion with your organization. And I think some of the issues around an adaptive mindset versus a fixed mindset in today's world are are very powerful so thanks again andrew uh, for coming on the podcast today really appreciate your generosity this has been the view podcast with boo and sean if you've got value from this episode and you would like to support us please share it with your friends if you're posting this on social media use the hashtag the few so we can see who's listening the few podcast is recorded at momentum media in sydney australia to listen to more episodes visit us at fewpodcast.com and make sure you subscribe so you never miss an episode dream big keep pushing and one day you can become one of the few we'll see you next week